Hi, and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I in I Think You're Interesting. This week, I am talking to Ray Seahorn of the TV show Better Call Saul. There is a this weird place uh, on Long Beach Avenue in Long Beach called Loof's Lytle Line. It's uh, this, this uh, weird arcade that has basically pinball gambling and uh it's not legally gambling that's how they're allowed to stay open but it's you 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 pay your money and you you pull back the thing like in pinball and and then the ball goes shooting up and then it goes into different little holes and you have to like do a line like in bingo it is i'm describing it very poorly to you but i promise you it is is crazy and what's interesting is the blend of chaos and control in the game like there isn't any pinball game you you pull the ball back and the way you shoot it you can kind of control it but at the same time it's subject to bumpers and all the random elements of chaos that are there and i think that that is really true of the characters in vince gilligan's shows like breaking bad and better call saul these are characters who are constantly buffeted by the forces of the universe and yet they're trying to take control of those same things they feel a little to me like that ball being caught in in the pinball machine bouncing around never quite knowing where it's going to land uh, and that's why I wanted to have Ray in to talk about her work as Kim on Better Call Saul. Ray Seahorn, hello. Hi, nice to be here. It's great to have you here. So Better Call Saul came in with all sorts of expectations, big hype, Breaking Bad, prequel. You have nothing to do with Breaking Bad, your character. What, <laughs> like, what was that like to step, into, so this, <laughs> to step into this <laughs> void of like, Here's this totally new person in this show where everybody's sort of you know, everybody's sort of focused on Saul and Mike, like sure. going through that initial round of like uh, publicity and, and and having people you know pay attention to the show. I guess. Well, I mean, it was interesting. I, obviously, no, I wasn't in the Breaking Bad uh, universe. Not that we saw. I mean, even the Nacho character Ignacio and stuff. There are people that you know we're not sure how they were involved or where they were, but his character was mentioned. So. Certainly, um, Michael McKean playing Chuck and Michael Mando, Patrick Fabian, and myself were sort of the newer cast members that we don't know what our place is in that universe. And there's pros and cons with that when we went into the publicity machine because, yeah, there's a lot of expectations on um, what was Bob uh, going to do with the Saul character and what uh, what else would we see about Mike and their beloved characters. And people couldn't wait to see them again Um so with the with the Better Call Saul newer cast, uh, newer characters, you had the freedom to kind of not have the answers. <laughs> and you did get asked a lot, like, what's your place in this? And we honestly didn't know. And I'm glad we didn't know because it would have been harder to keep it a secret. Uh, so it was you were um, very invited into the fold and certainly not treated like you were the, uh, you know, sitting at a different table. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you're right. The 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 main hype was about the characters that people already knew, but there was intense curiosity about the ones they didn't. So mm-hmm. it was it was really fun. Mm, great, great. Uh, Vince Gilligan, Peter Gould, uh, the creators of the show, are sort of known as being two of the nicer guys out there. One hundred percent. But I'm guessing they're not very forthcoming. Like w- when you have questions about like what's happening or where things are going, how how much do they tell you? Almost nothing. Um, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's it's interesting. Um, they are very, very nice guys. And I'm not surprised that, that, that you presented that first before that question because it isn't a manipulative process. Yeah. There's something very different about the feeling. And I have worked with people that are withholding even scripts because they somehow think it's going to um, get a fresher read out of an actor. And there's a lot of practices like that that I don't really agree with. Mm. Um and it's not it's not that sort of thing. Uh, for instance, when you balance it with stuff like, well, they give you your script um, as early as they can, and then there's very there's very little rewrites. Mm-hmm. So they want you to lock in. They want you to know it like the back of your hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, you can't always get them with tons of time to rehearse them because we're shooting ten in a row. But uh, they do want you to know your material, and they do very much invite conversations about the character. Um, I've only been met uh, with positive responses when I've written emails saying, you know, I, I, I'm trying to understand this part of the passage and what's happening there. That being said, for the most part, uh, they're trying to protect their process. And I figured that out sometime during the first season that um, the fact that Vince and Peter are two of the only showrunners that do not write a Bible for uh, the whole season, let alone the whole series mm. – um, is to leave themselves open, to not paint themselves into a corner. And, and it is a riskier way to write, to not know, uh, well, how am I ever going to 
fix that. Okay, I just planted that seed and now it's growing and I'm not sure where that's going. And and that is riskier, but it's very exciting and it's fun. And so you do feel like you're along for the ride with them. Um, that being said, yeah, there's definitely some backstory stuff where I, I don't understand. And I fill it in. And what's been interesting and fun is that uh, quite a few times I've um, something's been revealed about Kim Wexler, her backstory or her relationship with somebody or um, or even just uh, how she would behave in a certain situation. And it's very much in sync with what I was thinking. So there must be enough clues there that it's almost like a zeitgeist thing. You do start to get on the same page about who this person is. Mm. Um, but then you have the pleasure of being surprised by plot twists. Mm. <laughs> do you have a time when you can think of when you had sort of filled in a gap in your own head and then a script came in that sort of confirmed that, yes, they, you were on the right track? Yes. In uh, season two, when um, Schweikert and Coakley try to poach Kim mm. and she goes in for a job interview, uh, um, I was reading it and page by page, I'm like, oh, 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 I'm going to a job interview. I wonder what that'll be like. I wonder if I'll take the job or not. Page by page, I really don't know either because they do such a great job. And I think that's um, the fans of our show are so smart and tend to also appreciate that there's never anything that's just a clever stunt. You never feel like um, something just happened to force a plot forward. They're very character organic, and you understand both sides in almost all of the arguments, no matter how emotionally weighted you might be one way or the other. Everyone has a point. Everyone has um, uh, understandable reasons for taking a lot of different paths. And so when I went into the job interview scene, I had always thought Kim probably is not from New Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know why. They never told me that. There was something about, um, from the get-go, there was something about her starting in the mailroom, not like straight out of college as a young intern, which a lot of those positions would be filled with, but more in Jimmy as Jimmy's peer, of which kind of immediately to me rings... Um, Bring some bell of of somebody leaving somewhere. You didn't. You had to start over in some fashion. We know right. why Jimmy did. Um, but Kim being there and then getting on this fast track of uh, of trying to move forward and um, become a partner in a firm with a two year plan, which is extremely ambitious, um, and uh, her kind of vice grip on. If you work hard enough, you can you can stay afloat. You can get ahead. You can. Um, some, somehow everything's going to be okay if you just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And that kind of desperate need to feel that way always made me feel like she came from somewhere else and tried to start this anew and and is and um, kind of really needs to keep rowing this ship for some mm. reason. Uh, so by the time I got to the job interview, I'm reading it <laughs> and it has these questions like, so where are you? So tell us where you're from. You're not around here. And not only... Does it turn out that she's not from there, but she won't answer, mm. which I was like, oh, I sort of love that. It's odd. And I don't know why she gives little clues that, um, you know, it's near the Kansas-Nebraska border, um, which I think a lot of people were wondering why she wears a Kansas City Royals <laughs> um, nightshirt. Yeah. I got a lot of <laughs> tweets about that. I don't have the total answer for that one yet. Um, and uh, this idea of I just didn't want to I didn't want, you know, the bulk of my ambition to be working at a Hinky Dinky, um, mm-hmm. which is a grocery sta- uh, grocery store chain from around that area. Uh, and it all it all fit in with what I thought, that this is just somebody who um, needed to leave something and start new and then was sort of desperate to make that work. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, your Kim is sort of the I'd say almost the moral compass, the moral arbiter of the show. Uh, when she does, when she sort of goes in with with Jimmy on one of his schemes, like mm-hmm. we really feel like, oh, Kim should not be doing this. Like this is not. <laughs> and yet she's weirdly yeah. good at. Yeah, it, she's which weirdly is, good which at. Which is other. That's another area I had questions about. Yeah. And that's a character. That's a character who can be hard to play. Like can be really mm-hmm. hard to play the person who's usually doing the right thing. Yeah. Like where where do you find where do you find that person? Like where are, are you someone who usually does the right thing? Uh, I am someone that um, stresses and belabors trying to do the right thing. And and sometimes it can be um, far too 
uh, anxiety ridden when you start to I mean, do you do that when you start to stand back and it actually it, it almost becomes third third party where you're like, what would a good person do? Yeah. <laughs> what would, what would, is it OK? Um, how long does the note have to be on the guy's car that I just dinged? Uh, <laughs> you know, do I actually call the police and hang here in Trader Joe's parking lot? Um, yeah, I, I, I stress over that. Do I always do the good thing, the right thing? I doubt it. I don't know anybody does. Uh, one thing that releases me in the show from not feeling like I'm playing any kind of symbol mm-hmm. um, or trapped in a very small box is, in some ways, when 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 the show started in season one, you could buy into um, Chuck's character being the most moral, the most upstanding, certainly the most uh, adherent to the law and mm-hmm. legal practices, and Kim. Um, has a lot of respect for him, and and he's supposedly one of the people that you know helped her, helped pluck her from the mailroom, put her through law school. Um, and then what devolves is that you, they actually in the story uh, in Better Call Saul, you see the trap of being so morally righteous, so sure that things are only black and white, mm-hmm. um, and that legal and illegal is the same as good and bad. Um, that you corrupt yourself, which is my opinion of of, of the Chuck character, and I also think uh, Kim's uh, viewpoint on that character. So in those ways, I feel like they've allowed all of our characters, Kim Wexler included, to sort of struggle with what happens when you realize it's 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 not that easy. Um, yeah. Being the person that will stand up for what she thinks is right in this situation can be entirely different in the next such situation. And in the case of the Mesa Verde case at the end of season two, yes, she took Jimmy's side. And a lot of people were very excited with the, you know, the ride or die kind of <laughs> um, girlfriend um, and partner and friend. I think their their friendship is is so strong under the, the romance that that's part of what people respond to. Um, and yeah, she is protective of him, but there's a there's two other factors in that triangle going on, and one one for me was her confronting that moral uh, righteousness um, mm-hmm. that is out of control in Chuck. And one of the turning points, line wise, in the scene for me was when she tells him, "But isn't it possible you could make a mistake?" And he absolutely won't even say that he could have made a mistake, mm-hmm. and then tells her that she has no choice with what she has to do, which I don't think Kim appreciates anyone telling her that. Um, and then thirdly is her own her own ambition because theoretically conversationally she deserves the Mesa Verde case yeah. she did everything to get it it shouldn't have been taken away and her put in doc review to begin with but legally they have every right to take it back and right. now we've illegally brought it back into our possession um and so she's already in um new territory and that has helped me tremendously uh and season three is really an exploration of that, which has been fun. That the the toll, the toll mm-hmm. of having to let life be gray, which I think is accessible to people far more than just playing the morally righteous person. Right. Certainly, you had some good scenes in season one, but uh, it, it felt to me as if you know there there could have been more Kim in season one, but she's become Thanks. really <laughs> love it. She's become really <laughs> an important part of season two, and what I've seen of season three. What has that? You've seen things. Tell me. I've, I've seen. seen nothing. I've seen two. I've seen? seen two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what are what are the uh, what's that been like? Sort of having that gradual ramp up of the character being more and more important to like the core of the show. Um, amazing, amazing as an actor, amazing as a person who was a fan of Vince Gilligan, Peter Gould, and and all of my cast members and my whole writing stuff. It's it's. Uh, it's as cool as anybody would think. I wasn't told in advance, though. People, mm. I, I did get asked a lot, like, so were you told your character blows up in season two? I'm like, absolutely not. You just got script by script. And then um, really these scenes are written um, so densely, even with a character like mine that um, is uh, just as happy to not speak from a position for as a as a tool of power um, <laughs> as to speak. So even when it's not a line thing, the, the scenes are dense in what's going on and what's subtext. And so you're, you're taking things scene by scene, and then maybe you can jump to taking things episode by episode, but in the overlap, there's not a lot of time to, thank God, sit and think like, Wow, I'm a uh, I'm really ramping it up on this thing, but um, but certainly by episode five when she's in doc review and then um has to get clients back and has all those beautiful phone call and post-it scenes. Um, Bob got to go home for the first time um, to see his wife and children and everything uh, because it was the first time he wasn't in every single scene, you know, for three days in a row. Um, 
not a big break, but still. Uh, and and it was. It was just me. It was just me shooting alone for a couple of days. And it did dawn on me, oh, wow, there's um, there are 200 people, you know, crew plus writing staff uh, that just poured their heart and soul into something, and they're looking at just me. It's just me standing on the sledge smoking a cigarette or in the stairwell with the Post-its. And, and I felt so... Um, I felt excited and proud, and I've never wanted to challenge myself to be better, you know, in, in my life. When you have people like that that are all top of their game, that are like, you, uh, you can help tell this story. You 100 um, percent are the cog in the wheel to tell this story, and then you do it. And that, and that, and that was thrilling. And it was thrilling to um, really find out so much more about her because I, I love this character, and I have even from her mysterious first couple of scenes. I loved everything that. Uh, wasn't said, mm. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those scenes that you mentioned, sort of, that this is a show that loves its montages, that loves yes. it. It's like, we're going to dig into how... And its editors. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I have a lawyer friend who says this is really accurate as to how much of a grind, like making those phone calls, but keeping up those contacts, yeah. like how much that can be. But how do you play some of those like wordless scenes where it's just like you putting post-its up in a right. stairwell? Like, like where do you find the character in moments that are just like little snippets of scenes that are going to be edited together? Well, first of all, unfortunately, I have to say it's not, it's not all um, the actor being able to like fill 11, you know, fill the tiniest snippet and make it look like there's a beginning, middle, and end. Mm -hmm. It is uh, brilliant editors taking slices out of not long, but maybe 30 seconds mm -hmm. where there was a beginning and middle and end. So you do have what's called pocket dialogue. Um, and uh, they write extensive po pocket dialogue on this on this show, um, which is uh, dialogue that you're going to say, act, prepare it as though you were going to do this entire monologue or sometimes scene. There'll be a two-person pocket dialogue scene. Um, but they're letting you know with courtesy that uh, it's very possible the majority of it will be MOS. The majority mm. of it will not have sound or will have music over it or filter it so much that you can't entirely make out what somebody's saying. Mm. But it does give you um, the opportunity to pre prepare it and perform it with all the emotion and the actions and the gestural stuff um, that would happen if that was really happening. So then when they take snippets out, it, it, it's um, it's automatically of a, of a world, of a whole three-dimensional Scene. And then in the case of phone calls, phone calls are one of the hardest things for me personally. I'm not the only actor I know that thinks that um, because you're really suppressing. Um, I, I think the best the best scenes are when you can let go and make the whole scene about your scene partner. Every scene. I don't care if you have a monologue. It's about your scene partner. It's still about the mm -hmm. other character. Um, why are you telling them this? Mm -hmm. And what do they think? And why didn't you stop talking seven lines ago? You're still talking. So you didn't get something from them that would have stopped you. Mm -hmm. um, and. And so <clears throat> when you have phone calls, you really have to suppress the artifice of your scene partner because they don't exist <laughs> at all. And their lines don't even exist. I always write uh, for all the phone call montage scenes. I wrote the other side of the conversation. Um, and they do have lawyers there that I can consult with that I did and talk to about what is it like to make a cold call? What's the difference between a cold call that's just uh, – you heard on the news that some um, dental place was going to get sued, so you're calling versus, uh, you know, your 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 college roommate's mom um, right. has a law firm and you're calling her versus you see some of the phone calls she makes that involve um, calling drunk guy that was hitting on me at, you know, at one of the law parties and I really don't want to talk to him, but I do want to know if he has a case. And, yeah. you know, there's, there's different ways you speak to all those people. And I think that also... Even when they took the sound out and put and Kelly Dixon put in that amazing um, Spanish version of My Way, it, there's still, and I'm glad that you felt that when you saw it, there's still, it looks, and I had a lot of lawyers tell me, it looks like the grind of mm. what they do all day. And it's kind of awesome that we've had such positive responses from lawyers, not just the technicality of some of the stuff that comes up in the contract world that they do, um, but... Uh, People really really responded to, if you're going to say somebody works hard, I want to see them work hard. Yeah. I actually want to see the shitty part, not yeah. the mini skirts in court. I want to see you work. Um, and so uh, that's been great. That's been great. When I think about Kim, kind of the first thing I think of is those shots in the parking garage where she's like leaning against the wall. and The smoking. And, yeah, and smoking. Yeah, yeah. They're There's very something noir. <laughs> particular about the way she stands, the way she carries herself. And I'm always interested in hearing how actors find 
the physical presence of this character they're playing? What, what, what was it like finding the way that Kim moves, I guess? Well, some of it's a process. You do have to dive right in, though. The first, mm-hmm. um, in, in episode one, I uh, the pilot, I mean, um, there's a small bit of Kim when she's in the conference room and Jimmy busts in and does this You Will Atone Ned Beatty monologue. Right. Um, but really the first time you see her fully is, is that parking garage scene um, with the shared cigarette when Jimmy comes down there and Arthur Albert shot that so so beautifully. Um, there was something about the economy of lines to me because I had very little to hang on to and they really were not entirely sure what this relationship was or who Kim was. And they talked to me and said, we feel like they, they know each other back from the mailroom days, they being Jimmy and Kim. Um, so about 10 plus years. Could have gone in and out of being romantic. We don't know where it is now. Uh, but there is some sort of extreme um, confidence between them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and then I, I read it and there's there's really only one sentence there. It's one sentence broken up, half his, half mine. Couldn't you just, um, you know, I can't. Mm-hmm. Which implies history of being asked that many times. If I already know where you're going, I fixed the kicked trash can. So he, I clearly know that he's been there, and I also understand to some degree cleaning up his messes, even though maybe I don't let him see that. Right. Um, sharing a cigarette implies a lot of intimacy. Um, not having to ask implies even more. Mm. Um, and uh, being able to say exactly what you think and tell somebody, no, I have boundaries, also implies a certain type of person in the relationship, who, where, what my position is in the relationship. Um, so I took all of that and I thought, but she says only what she needs to, be, needs to be said and she does only the action that needs to be taken. There's not a lot of um, flourish to her. Um, there's a lot of polish and... Um, but there's not, you know what I mean? She's not, it's, there's nothing, there's nothing messy about her externally. That is. Yeah. So I transferred that into the physicality of um, clean, much more still than I am in real life. I'm, I'm quite um, awkward and gestural in real life. And I don't think Kim is. It's much more still. You only, uh, I think she's great at poker, hmm. really great at poker. <laughs> and <laughs> so I. Uh, I try to physically not give up any more than she's giving up with dialogue. Right. Hmm. Interesting. We've sort of uh, danced around the, the relationship with Jimmy, the, the friendship slash romance mm. slash right. some like metaphysical connection that's almost impossible <laughs> to understand. What do you think is that connection between Kim and Jimmy? Like what keeps drawing them to each other even when one or both of them know it's maybe not the best idea? Right. Um. I've always felt like... Uh, they had more in common than not in mm. common. Um, I know that she's trying to uh, stay on the right side of the law. And so you can look at that sort of issue and think like, w- you know, what are you doing with this person who's a con man and um, and uh, really, really coloring outside of the lines. Although up until up until uh, the season that we're on, you, we are seeing the Mesa Verde case certainly stepped over the line and, and there were consequences for that and there continue to be consequences for that um, on both of them and and on their relationship. But the other things, when when, when the billboard scene happened and he, th- she smiles when no one's looking. Um, yeah. I think she appreciates his eccentricities and his actual um, intelligence. So, in some ways, she can be a conduit for the—she's not just the moral center. She can be a conduit for the audience that also loves um, Jimmy and mm-hmm. loves and loves Saul when he's not ordering a hit on somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. the part of him that is actually a great lawyer. That opening scene uh, with the with the twins that— um, that uh, he's negotiating with Tuco to not not cut off all their arms and legs. And how about just one arm? Um, he's being a brilliant lawyer. It's the circumstances that are horrible. Yeah. Uh, and he's the most loyal to her of anyone. He's the least duplicitous. Um, here's Chuck, you know, the pillar of justice, and Howard Hamlin, who dresses perfectly and has done nothing but help her, but she slowly finds out they they all have these other agendas. They all do things um, that are not in her best interest. And he's... Jimmy is the least duplicitous in her life. And they're both kind of loners. Neither of them, they don't hang with friends. Mm-hmm. Occasionally they know someone that mm-hmm. comes into their world and you realize, oh, that seems to be an acquaintance. But that kind of having that one person that you can um, take off your mask 
and take off the costume in front of is what I always saw about uh, about the two of them. And and it is it is sad. It, there's a sadness to the scenes where even in that they have to dance around a little bit the stuff that can't be said because right. if you really lay out uh, all the parts of what you've just done, um, I might not be able to live with myself to stay in this relationship. Uh, and then likewise in return, he seems to know some things about her that um, she brings up her dad in the ice station zebra episode where they're watching it. Um, and even in the script, it said uh, he knows better than to bother about it. Um, I think he knows things about her, about where she's come from and what her struggle is. Um, and allows her to just be what she's able to be now. Mm-hmm. And I think she tries to give that back to him. I think mm-hmm. it's also helpful that it's not a situation where either is, neither is condemning the other person for their behavior that falls outside of the lines of who they are, but, in, but instead trying to be counsel as a friend. And, yeah. and again, that goes back to the friendship. I think the fact that there's such a strong friendship underneath of anything that's romantic is... Uh, it is what binds them together. I think they truly, uh, truly, truly like each other on mm-hmm. top of loving each other. And so, yeah, you try to, you definitely try to save that ship. It's mm-hmm. hard though. <laughs> I always thought of um, Breaking Bad as a show about a guy who seemed good but was actually bad. And I think the brilliant thing about Better Call Saul is it's a show about a guy who seems bad but is actually good. Like I totally agree. Jimmy has ac- actually has like a moral conscience. He yes. doesn't know how to talk to it all the time. But Agreed. So I'm wondering like, I feel like that connects Kim and Jimmy in some ways. What oh, good th- point. Yeah. What, what do you think is like the biggest wedge between them? Like, what is the thing that drives them apart most frequently or pulls them into conflict? Jimmy's incredibly impulsive, uh, and so um, Kim can think things out to death. And so I think there's times when some of his actions have all the right intentions, but his impulsiveness leads him to uh, go after them in ways that could jeopardize him, mm-hmm. her, and or the relationship. And so I think th- those are the biggest wedges, I think, for her um, of, uh, listen, you know, you can you can find alternate ways to do a lot of things. And I don't even think she, you know, there's a lot of uh, stereotypical guy in, in Kim as, mm-hmm. as far as the relationship. I always felt like he's the far more emotional one and yeah. wants to talk everything out. And she's like, it's a project. Let's solve it. Um and she's observant. And so I think the wedges start to happen when he can't stop himself from taking an action that could actually jeopardize them. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is always looking at big picture uh, instead of step by step. And I think that's the, I think that's the hardest part for her is, you know, it's like trying to catch somebody before they fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting you bring up the the sort of masculine feminine energy of the two characters because I sort of think of Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul as really great shows about sort of the cost of trying to be a man in America, like sort of like that that masculine ideal that sometimes really hurts people when they try Mm -hmm. to live up to it. And what is it sort of like to be in a show like that as, as, you know, one of the few uh, female cast members? Um... I love what you said about... I I think that about Breaking Bad and I also think about Better Call Saul. It's, uh... Male, yeah, and even that, you know, that kind of Arthur Miller stuff of whether it's oh, All sure. My Sons or Death yeah. of a Salesman, um, the cost of what the tiny box that we've given men traditionally for uh, saying they're successful. Mm-hmm. Like what means success is like such a tiny little list of things that they have to stay in. Um, so, in, in, but in Better Call Saul, I think that that has expanded to uh, what that meant the the this male the idea of male success is being applied to anyone and and that includes Kim and um you know I think I've gotten a lot of really great feedback from people finding her to be even one of the most feminist characters on television all these I'm gonna blush now but I mean these lovely things they've said um and male and female fan, fans having such a great response to her and the truth is. I don't think anybody, I certainly didn't set out to play her with that kind of feminist agenda. And I don't think they're writing her that way. What they're writing her as is genderless. It's it, a, not that she can't own being female, and, mm-hmm. and she does. And um, and she is feminine. But uh, but what does that mean? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I guess, like, I just enjoy that her struggles uh, are about being a human, mm-hmm. trying to 
navigate a relationship um, and they show relationship as as work. And it is. And it's great that that can be romantic, as romantic as, you know, a sex scene and just a song that's supposed to tell you they're in love. Like these people are in love because they work hard at it. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I think her need to get ahead and that feeling of um, being ambitious and getting pushed back down and yeah, at 2002 in a law firm that's primarily male in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I'm sure there was sexism going on, but Kim is just not interested in playing that game. And mm-hmm. I think that that is an interesting story for people to see as well, that kind of, um, I don't care. I'm just going to, you know, uh, <laughs> Tina Fey and Bossy Pants, I loved it. She said at one point when people kept asking her, um, so what did you do when you encountered all the sexism in your business and getting ahead? And she said, over, under, around. Not everything is a teachable moment. So, I, you know, if if Kim were to find out that, you know, uh, uh, Hamlin's character, which this wasn't the case, but if, if, if his issues with her is that she's a woman, I think she would just go, go above him, go mm. around him, go under him, find a different way than, um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I feel like it's awesome that it is not um, spotlighted right. that she's a woman in that world. And instead, it it's... It's obvious. Our viewers are intelligent enough that they can see, like, look what she's doing in what is primarily a man's world, especially of that time in in that place. Mm-hmm. Um, and she doesn't care. She's just going to keep, just keep rowing that boat um, and force her way into kicking down doors. And Jimmy certainly doesn't see her as less than. Mm-hmm. It's 100% equal. And that alone is a lovely thing to be putting out in the universe. Um she is never treated as the damsel in distress. And, you know, uh, Ann Cherkis wrote that beautiful scene where I say, uh, you don't save me, I save me. Mm. Um, and uh, that being said, I also sometimes wish they turn the cameras around when people say, uh, well, gosh, shouldn't there? And, you know, certainly we had Jesse Ennis and Carrie Condon and um, we had some amazing women in right. our cast. But as far as series regular, yes, it primarily is me. But if you turn the cameras around, more women in positions of power than probably any have been on any set. Um, And they're directing and they're writing and they're producing and they're executive producing and line producing. (laughs) Um, We have uh, grips that are female, uh, a position I I don't think I've ever seen um, filled with females um, and focus pullers and everything else. So I never actually feel alone you know when you talk about like are you really just the lone woman standing there no not at all (laughs) not at all there's a there's a powerful team going on over there uh i kind of want to get into some of your background um but i want to get there through better call Saul by asking uh, i kind of i kind of grew up in that era of great like courtroom dramas of like everything from la law to like uh, a few good men or whatever Mm -hmm. and i always was like i'm just gonna go to law school because that's where all the cool exciting stuff happens i'm wondering (laughs) Did you did you ever have that feeling of like I should go to law school? Um Yes and no. I, I would I definitely knew a lot of people that I knew that were very um very intelligent and very articulate. Uh it wasn't from TV so much uh for me. It was people around me that that's what they started to choose to go to law school and I thought, "Oh, is that where like and they didn't even not not all of them even wanted to practice law. It seemed to be yeah. some gateway degree to go be anything you wanted to be. Um, so I certainly had some. <laughs> I certainly considered that. I by then I was already um, in love with acting, so it didn't it it didn't occur to me in that fashion. What I was most interested in was the part of what it does to you as a person. And so when I got this part, obviously I could not hurry up and go to law school. I had about a month um, from the time they, maybe two months from the time they told me what the character would actually be because the auditions were not real sides. I did. It was not Kim Wexler. It was not a lawyer. It was an entirely different character. Hmm. Um, so by the time I found out it was a lawyer between that and shooting time, um, I just wanted to like start thinking about that world. And my manager suggested, because she went to law school, <laughs> um, <laughs> she's suggested uh, Scott Turow's um, 1970 book, 1L, 1972 sure. book, 1L, which is amazing if you haven't read it. Um, and he's in uh, Harvard Law, um, and they're called 1Ls in the first year. But it And there's a lot of legalese in, um, in it and a lot of understanding of tort law, contract law, and all of that stuff that was very helpful, helpful um, technically. But the majority of the book is about what uh, what 
going to law school and considering practicing law does to someone's normal moral compass because they are not the same thing. This whole idea, like we were talking about in the beginning of this podcast, of good and bad not being the same as moral and immoral and certainly not being the same as legal and illegal. Mm-hmm. And you can't take that into the courtroom. It's uh, it's not about whether you uh, you think that that woman really didn't deserve that or uh, that man really you know didn't get a fair shake. That is not the question in mm. court. That is not what you prepare. And that's not where you can leave your head or you will never be good at this. And and Scott Turow talks about it in the book that there were there were some people that were excelling in class that had to leave when they realized, I don't actually want to look at the world like this. Mm. I don't like thinking about it like this. I don't like thinking. I believe in the law system and the judicial system. And, and you've got to have a way to uh, arbitrate things like so you, it has to come down to something. But um but the world being black and white in that particular fashion is devoid of some of the more philosophical and romantic and magical ways to think about life and um, and the transactions of mm. relationships and the transactions of trying to, as you said, trying to be whatever it is that you think is be a good person mm-hmm. and be successful and and, and and interpreting those. And so that book was really helpful to me. And almost immediately, that seemed to me to be something that Kim wrestles with when I right. started the show. Right, right. It, it sort of seemed to me as if you had um, an overnight success. Like you, I, I had seen you in a few guest parts and then you were on Whitney and then you were on some other stuff. But for you, I'm sure it did not feel that way no. at all. Like for you, it probably was like this is this long grind. What what was sort of your process of? It doesn't of, feel like a long grind though. Yeah, what was your process? Twenty two years I've been doing it. What was your process of of getting to the point you're at now? Mm, I think I have the math right. I might not. I did theater for about twelve years on the East Coast in New York okay. and Washington D.C. and uh, then started getting a couple of guest stars and then got my first series regular job on. A sitcom called I'm With Her, mm-hmm. shooting at Warner Brothers. They flew me out to do the pilot. It got picked up pretty much immediately. And that moved me to L.A. And I did the whole live in the, um, the Oakwoods mm-hmm. on Barham. <laughs> and then um, didn't have a car so or a license. Um, it had expired years ago in New York. Um, so I... Uh, so I just simply got an apartment at the other end of the hill by Warner Brothers and continued to walk to work while we shot... 24 episodes, I think, of that show. I took the bus for about a year and a half in L.A. <laughs> um, yeah. and uh, and the Metro, which I, was awesome, meeting a lot of people that didn't—a lot of the local residents did not know that you have a Metro here. Um, it's actually very nice and very clean. We're doing better about it now. It's, yeah. Yes, 100%. <laughs> well, this was 12 years ago. So oh. now I've been doing TV about the same amount of time that I've been doing— um, that I had been doing theater. So it was a series regular part, and then I've had um, really great— uh, it's funny because it's a lot of my a lot of my work is not seen. I was lucky enough to get cast in um a lot of really great pilots and worked almost every season. Um, but some of the smartest and the funniest don't get on the air. Yeah. <laughs> so I had a lot of heartbreaks just material wise. I was like, I want people to hear this. Um, and uh, worked with some awesome people. But then you know, then they go and do other things, and they think of you again, and you go do those. Um. But uh, certainly didn't become a world of of me just being offered stuff. So, yeah. and that's why I kind of laugh when that's the part that doesn't feel um, overnight success or or easy. I have I think it would sound cooler if I were to tell people, um, yeah, and they just had seen the body of my work and they called me <laughs> and they were like, "There's no way anybody else could do this." That has not been the case for. Uh, Anything. And, and and I've had quite a few jobs. This is not one of them, but I've had quite a few jobs. Uh, I won't name names where I was the second choice because they wanted to go after a name mm. and then did and it didn't work out. And uh, and they and they came to me. No fault to the name person. I have no idea. Maybe they not available, changed their mind, got five movies. I don't I don't know. Um and I never get upset about that. I think, you know, that's a that's a win win. Not only do I get to do this part that I'm in love with by that point and prepping it and everything. But I also get to um, take one for the team for those of us that are not um, uh, your best bet to finance something. I'm not an A-list film star, but what if I really help you tell the story the best it could possibly be told? And maybe in the end that will be an even better payoff. Um, 
And you just, you know, so I feel I feel good about that. And I feel right. good about introducing people to my work that might not otherwise um, know it. But, yeah, it's been a lot of auditioning. And I didn't get a lot of parts. This is the thing. I mean, I, I went through pilot season and uh, Better Call Saul was floating out there. I honestly thought that... Um, that they'd probably make an offer. It's just such a high-caliber um, show with high-caliber people. And I thought, well, they can get absolutely anybody they want to. So I guess it won't be me. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I wasn't thinking, you know, I, most people by now know the, the lore and the history of uh, Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould as far as auditioning. Two things. One, they actually hold auditions. Mm-hmm. And many, many people don't even hold auditions for the lead roles in television shows anymore, um, which is sad and unfortunate. Mm. And if they do, it's more just to go through the process. Um, but they have their favorite that they're going to offer to it anyway. Um, that, uh, I haven't gone through a lot of that. I hear that a lot from my friends. Um, uh, I've done a lot. Of, I've worked with great people. I'm very, very lucky. But at any rate, um, I thought they'd probably just make an offer. And that's not true. They hold auditions. And the other thing is that... Um, Vince and Peter don't uh, put people in a in a box for doing comedy. When I was doing theater, I did just as much drama as comedy. And um, not everybody that's a dramatic actor has comedic timing. So it's not always a back and forth. Right. But versatility is certainly seen as a, as a virtue, an asset. Not so when you when I got out here. I couldn't I was blown away by the whole well, she's a sitcom actress, right? We're not mm-hmm. calling her in for this drama. I could not go get called in for a drama. And if so, it was kind of cursory. And at one point there was feedback. I remember I went in for some one hour show and I did the callback. So now I'd done the scene twice, this very serious wrenching scene. And um and the feedback was still they love her, but the producers actually really liked her from I forget which sitcom they had watched. Uh, so they're just worried that she's going to, you know, later on down the road, try to bring a comedic element to this. Like, I'm going <laughs> to insist on wearing clown shoes in the hospital scene or something. It was the weirdest thing to me. So, I, yeah, I couldn't go in for many dramas. So by the time Better Call Saul came up, um, Sharon Bialy and Sherry Thomas uh, and Russell Scott, the casting people that I adore, they've seen a body of my work larger than has ever seen the light of day because they've been calling me in for 10 years. I've mm-hmm. done... I've done a huge body of work for them of parts I didn't get. But they, uh, and this is what I would tell anybody in this business, uh, especially if they are starting out, um, is there is a reward for bringing your A game every time. Mm. And I don't, and I, and I went in for parts for Sharon that had, that they told me flat out they have offers to three names. I really don't think you can get it, but they do want to see some people just in case. And right. I, I went, I went, I found a way, find it, figure out what you love about this character, what's interesting about this character, and make a three-minute performance that you would do in your driveway for the mailman if he'll sit still. Like, you need to love that. And I know that doesn't take away the nervousness, which I have horrible, horrible nerves at auditions. But um, but love it despite the result. Mm. Love it whether or not you get the job so that when you leave what you did was a three-minute black box performance one night only for some of the best casting directors in town and maybe even the producer or director if they can be there or the, or, or the writers. And they're going to cast who they want to cast, but at least leave the impression that, like, holy shit, that was, wow, that was a very interesting take on that character. Yeah. And I do think that cumulatively it, got Sharon, it put Sharon in a position to then tell Vince and Peter that she knew from Breaking Bad and that they very much like actors that um, uh, are collaborative, but also self self propelled right. to uh, uh, make a character have texture and and complete and three dimensional, no matter what you give them. Um, I think she had a place to come from to go and tell them when you go through seventy five thousand games on on number four. Stop at number four. I think you might be interested in in the way this girl works. Um, I don't know exactly what Sharon said, but I have to believe that it that it that it matters. The work you put in for ten years prior to then one day get um, yeah one of probably my favorite parts of twenty two years uh, right. ever. Right. What are what do you do to prepare for an audition? Do you have rituals? Do you have uh, things that you always do? Uh, text first. T- lines first. Um, I coach people on occasion, and I'm always kind of amazed that um, they're like, "Well, you don't." Ha-. They said you didn't have to totally be off book, so I'm not totally off book. But for me, uh, best part of my audition is the listening part. Mm-hmm. Is being uh, 
authentic in the way I take in what the other person says and letting that spur my next line. If you are not totally off book and totally memorized, your head will be down between your lines because you're looking for your next line while the casting director says their line. Um, I want my head up the whole time. So text first. Um, Learn it all. Then make a decision about everything. And I don't care if it's a guest star part uh, and they refuse to give you the script. Or um, in my case, scenes that were not part of Better Call Saul was scenes that were not only within a script. So I don't know the. I don't know what happened before. I don't know what happened after. I don't know what the world is. Uh, they aren't even from the eventual script. This is this they, they had um, to protect, you know, the scripts floating out there. Um, primarily just because they love their fans so much and and they don't want leaks out there. Um, but you still had to make decisions, and so that's the other thing I do is make make concrete decisions. No matter what, I, I firmly believe that um, your acting in an audition will look better, even if you've chosen to play it as though she just came from murdering her whole family. And that's not at all what's going on. Yeah. It still would be a more interesting way to say, I'll just have a latte yeah. than, <laughs> um, than not making any decision. Now, I'm being extreme. Obviously, if if something if you know something's a comedy or whatever, you want to be careful with, with what types of choices you're making. But make a choice. Make a choice and be a real person and have a real thought about, you know, uh, I don't know. Are you on a diet and so you really shouldn't have asked for the latte? Are you are you not sure if you're going to ask for sugar and then you decide not to? There's There's... As much to do with, like I said before, with what you don't say as what you do say. Um, so I make decisions for all the lines. And then um, uh, uh, think about your overall um, choice of, like, what it is that you're trying to get from your scene partner. Do everything you can to make it about the scene partner, even though that can often just be a reader. Um, again, it's about it's about them. Be, mm-hmm. be there to, to get something. Right. Um, Ritual-wise, uh, no, I'm an absolute spaz. I don't have any—I wish so much I knew how to deal with nerves, but um, I still, uh, as you can see even today in the podcast, uh, I wear sleeveless things to almost everything um, that makes me nervous because I sweat oh. so badly. Um, and uh, that's hard. That's hard to get rid of. What happens usually is four lines in, I'm in, I'm in the world. But the first three lines, it's just that it's that weird game to get out of your head of, I want this job. Mm. That just can't be the energy you're there with. Um, but anybody, you don't have to be an actor to know what a job interview feels like. Yeah. And to real, yeah. And, and you know in your heart, I'm here to let you know how great it would be to have me. Like, <laughs> let's not, you know, that's how this should go. And um, here's what I have to offer. And like I said, I honestly do try to make three-minute little character pieces that I that I love. I love them independent of everything else that's going on. But just that first couple of steps into the room, um, or God help you, whatever happened in the waiting room, because unfortunately there still are the, um, you know, the actors that size you up and the people that try to make you feel badly. And then there's the one that just came out of the room that's dying laughing. And, and the director's like, oh my God, I'd cast you right now if I could. Who's next, Ray? <laughs> and it's fucking awful. Um, and you just got to... You just got to calm yourself down. I do the whole, lately I've been doing the, um, what is it, uh, the mindfulness exercises. You can get them on like podcasts where it's you do the stuff like the inventory, where are my feet? Because I want to respond to everything that's going on around me. And I want to res- and I want to tell my heart to stop raising and my armpits to stop sweating and stop thinking about it as a, as a job. Just do your piece. Don't worry about it. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, wow, that girl is gorgeous. She's going in. That sucks. Um, whatever, you, know, you want to not think about all that. But telling yourself to not think about it is ridiculous. So there's these mindful mindfulness exercises where you do an inventory of where are your hands, where are your feet, are they hot, are they cold? Mm. Uh, okay, your heart is racing. In what way? How does that feel? What other sounds do you hear? Can you actually hear what's outside or only what's inside? Um, can you tell where the air is coming from? Is a vent on? Like you just have to do just what's. Uh, real in the world to stop your brain from doing a narrative that is completely assumption. It's not reality at all. (laughs) Interesting. Interesting. Um, So one of the things that you mentioned earlier was that you've done a lot of pilots that didn't Mm -hmm. get picked up. Is there one in particular that you wish the world had gotten to see, even if that was the only episode we ever got to see? So many. Not so many. I make it sound like all I do is like shows that don't get on. But um, (laughs) it's it's not that. But I think anybody um, who's been fortunate enough to work a lot knows that really the odds are, I mean, you know, so many pilots are made. Mm -hmm. 
and so few got on. So all of those pilots are existing out there in the world anyway. Didn't there used to be a cable channel that was showing? Yeah, Trio, that, yeah. Why didn't they keep that? I thought that was brilliant. Um because it's definitely like, I remember my family was watching Trio or something and they said, I always just assumed the shows that didn't get on must have been bad. And I was like, no, that's yeah. not at all you know, the reason, you know, most of the time. Anyway, two two come to mind that are heartbreakers. Um, I'm surprised I don't just carry around DVDs of them in my purse. One <laughs> is uh, Kevin Falls, um, Eva Adams, and I was playing the lead and it was uh, an adaptation of, I think, a Venezuelan show um, that has a little bit of magical thinking in the beginning with a curse. It's a sports agent guy who's um, an absolute misogynist, sexist pig, uh, always talking about how it's easier to be um, uh, it's easier to be a woman and they get away with murder and all of this stuff and he sleeps around and he wakes up one morning as a woman. Mm. And I was playing the woman and Will Arnett was the man inside my body. Mm. And <laughs> it was his voice also in my head. And Kevin Falls just wrote this brilliant um, one hour that uh, really explored. Um, yes, there were the jokes you would have expected of like, okay, I have breasts. I'm just going to stay home and touch my own breasts all day. And like, you know, the the, the broad body switching comedy jokes you would expect. But yeah. he kept pushing these interesting, darker roads of um, going back. She goes back to the office and, and says that uh, her boss— Will Arnett is uh, away on leave for a family emergency, and you know she's he's asked her to fill in. She's trying to hold her job until she can figure out how to become a man again. But then starts having to navigate the world of is it w- do I use my sexuality to get ahead? Because that dude over there is flirting with me, which is wildly uncomfortable on a multitude of reasons now. Mm-hmm. But um, should I use it to get what I want? Or like, and it's navigating a lot of very interesting stuff. So that didn't get on, and then. Um, Christopher Guest, first time doing television, he directed a pilot called um, The Thick of It that uh, um, Mitchell Horwitz wrote, um, right. first thing after uh, Arrested Development. And I, I, I'm pretty sure you can figure out why it would be awesome if it was Mitchell Horwitz and Christopher Guest. And that's when the first time I worked with Michael McKean, um, mm. who I adore, and Michael Higgins was in it, and... Um, Alex Borstein and oh my god, uh, uh, Henry Winkler, um, Oliver Platt, Wayne Wilderson. Um, it was amazing. It was just I can't. It's the fantasy land you would expect to to work on a show like that. And um, and it was scripted. It was not all improv, which is I think I think I thought it might be, <laughs> um, but no, it wasn't. And we had and we had a blast, and it was awesome. And I don't know why I don't know why either one didn't get on. To <laughs> tell you the truth. <laughs> um. You 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 have done a lot of work you, in theater, as you said, um, and you've also done a lot of work in multi-camera sitcoms, which mm-hmm. are sort of closely related to the the live studio audience sitcoms for people who don't sure know. and the <laughs> and the multi-cam setup, the yeah. proscenium style. You're playing out, yeah, shadow box type set, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very similar. What has what has that kind of work brought to something like Better Call Saul or or some of your single camera comedy work? Like, what's the difference? Or just uh, what have you learned from there that you didn't expect to be able to apply to something like Better Call Saul that you ultimately were able to? Well, the choices the choices you make, and um, for that, for anybody in the audience that doesn't know, uh, I'm just talking about um, the. As a human being, there is, no matter how deeply supplanted, a reason to say everything we say mm-hmm. um, and to do everything we do. Um, trying to figure that out is about making choices line by line as an actor when you're playing a character. Um, and the choices normally are best when rooted in the other person on stage with you. Um, so that being said, I found that in the comedies I did, because people will talk about uh, whether it's theater being bigger and more broad or sitcoms being bigger and more broad than the one-hour comedies or even the one-hour dramas being a step further. I disagree about those terms. Um, I think they uh, imply um, they imply a, a lack of skill to finesse one's performance, which is not what's going on. You're playing the ha- I would pl- you would play a 20-seat theater very different than when you would play a 3,000-seat seat theater. So if a camera is up in your face, which you are capable of doing in a one hour um, Mm -hmm. single cam that can do 360 and can be um, close to you, I can make, uh, I can let somebody know that I'm 
unsure if my if my if the other character is lying with a very small gesture. Mm-hmm. But if you're playing um, Broadway, shame on you if you do a flicker of your eye that no one saw past yeah. row one. That then you're being unprofessional and a terrible actor too. So I don't think it's about big. I don't think it's about broad. But the comedies I got to do, I was always the character part, um, which I love and has been the majority of my career, uh, who had, um, and often in sitcoms, you have uh, sort of almost externalized uh, um, obstacles. So um, like a very funny way of, of moving or handling things or looking at someone or there's deadpan looks and that kind of comedy, which was a lot of fun for me to play. But you had to supply reasons in order to make it a three-dimensional person. Otherwise, you just get a string of jokes. So the work that goes into, um, and the lovely writers I worked with that uh, couldn't be happier to talk to an actor that wants to make sure it's not just jokes, because they don't write just jokes either. They want a real person. Doing that kind of work um, is probably the biggest thing that's applicable to, uh, I'm sorry, we're both on Claren and I keep running out of saliva, (laughs) Um, (laughs) applicable to everything I do. And so when at first... There, I have to. I would have to admit, I got a little scared at first when I finally got to come back to um, one-hour single cam. It's much more like uh, the theater, the drama theater that I was doing before this this piece. It's very. It's Vincent Peters' work is also uh, text heavy, dialogue heavy. There are um, two-person scenes with just talking for eight to ten pages sometimes. Um, and so that felt comfortable for me. But I I did get scared for a second of like, oh my gosh, did I? lose my skill set with subtlety because I've been doing um, sitcoms. And the truth is, no, that's just people getting in your head. Um, You instinctively, if you've been doing it long enough, are not going to play to the audience if that's not a show you're doing. I know where the camera is and I know that it's smaller. Uh, uh, Understanding the tone is always, is always like, you know, that's a, that's a subtle, that's a subtle thing. Um, Fargo and, uh, Mr. Robot and um, a show like Transparent, uh, Girls, Better Call Saul. I look at all of these and I think they're all dramas that have comedy in them, but vastly different tones. Right. And yet to put your finger on what's the difference in the tone, what's exactly like the difference in the tone is hard. And that's Mm -hmm. something that you just kind of learn organically on set. Um, So I guess the thing that applied the most was just, yeah, making my choices and then being being open to watching people so you could hear the tone. Mm. We're going to head into the the end here, so I, I want to come back to Better Call Saul and ask you, we know Kim is not in the world of Breaking Bad. How much does that weigh on you as someone who presumably really likes the character? Like, yeah. how much does that weigh on you that at some point she and Jimmy have a split? Right. I don't see it as dyed in the wool. Hmm. <laughs> I don't... Uh, and that's not just to preserve uh, my own spirit. That's... um. I don't think it is a foregone conclusion that uh, anybody that exists in Better Call Saul that was not actually seen or spoken about in Breaking Bad does not exist during Breaking Bad. Mm. That doesn't mean that I secretly know something that I'm not telling you. That's not the case at all. I don't think they've completely decided where some of us end up and what happens. Um, but you never went home with Saul. Mm-hmm. You did not see who he hung out with. You don't know who his friends are. I don't know any reason why you would tell someone like Walter White that you have a girlfriend or a brother. Um, (laughs) You know, so I'm not entirely sure that we don't exist. Mm. We might not exist. Um, We might be there, but just not speaking to him anymore. Uh, There's a lot. There's a lot of different avenues. And what I do trust is they're going to write the smartest evolution of whatever these character stories end up being by the time you reach the Breaking Bad era. And um, more and more, I watch them and I just think like, well, it would just be dumb if everybody in Better Call Saul was dead. Like, it would just, <laughs> you know, I don't think they would yeah. ever write that simple. Yeah. I think it's going to be a lot more complex than that. And um, and therefore, I'm not entirely sure what happens to Kim. I, I, re- I really don't know. I make fun of them all the time and tell them. So in the Gene Cinnabon scenes, you pan back and you <laughs> finally see that next door is Claire's accessories and it's Kim with her own comb over and mustache. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't know where she ends up. Uh, so I ask uh, all my guests some of the same questions at the end. Um, and I want to start by asking, uh, what is the, just the last like pop culture work that you've consumed, be it a song, book, movie, TV show, uh, the most recently, and, and what did you think of it? 
20th Century Women. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see it? Yes. Yes, loved it. Why? Why? why <laughs> I can't even. I'm going to start crying. Why wasn't Annette Benning nominated? Not that I it's know. a meritocracy. I I, I sh- there's a thousand performances that weren't nominated that should have been. That's fine. But uh, I couldn't move. I was watching it and... Um, the only people that had, I, I heard some, most most people just say amazing things about it, but that little bit of burbling of negative criticism had to do with, you know, so many like uh, beginnings of a point that then it just wasn't made. And I couldn't disagree more. Mm. When the credits came up, I realized what an experiential film it was that you never got told exactly what to think. Um, and even the lovely um, music and needle drops that are through it, they were never uh, to shorthand your experience watching the performances and just hearing this this incredible dialogue, um, you had to think on your own. And before you knew it, when the credits were rolling up, I started just bawling. Mm. <laughs> my my fiance was like, "Are you okay?" And he lo- he loved it too. But I said it was it was weird. It was like it was like a buildup. It was like synapses were firing um, in a way that was so much more thoughtful and so much. Pa- it's like when you hear a great song or you read. Um, a poem that is not uh, uh, in plain language, I guess, um, and you're not entirely sure why you're so affected. That's how I felt about the film. I, uh, I was just like, I'm, I'm, I'm just so deeply affected by the the, the chapters of people's lives and how you could um, be easily affected and have your life shaped by the different people that come and go out of it, and to um, take seriously and also take lightly. Yeah. Just the interaction and the transactions that we have every day, all day. Hmm. Hmm. Wonderful. Um, what are you What are you looking forward to? Um, season three coming out. I'm very excited about it's. It's. Uh, I. I would presume as a as a writer. I don't know. Do you write novels? Uh, just just right now, just just criticism. But okay. Well, you know, it's that, on the docket somewhere. But you yeah. know that feeling of working on something without the audience yeah. yet for mm-hmm. a really long time. Yeah, definitely. Um, and there's something awesome about keeping it a protected little nest egg that we built this together you guys yeah. um and then there's like oh you have to let someone read the book <laughs> like, <you> know, <laughs> um that is you know the purpose of art is the is the sender and the receiver and we don't have a receiver yet um mm. and i love our fans and uh and uh and the critics have been so incredible to us that we we care deeply about making the best story we can and it was an awesome season and I'm just I'm really looking forward to it getting out there um I'm excited to see it too since I've forgotten <laughs> like to me I shot one 10-hour episode is what it feels like <laughs> I don't remember the breaks at all and finally what is you can interpret this any way you like whether it's something you've seen a lot it's something you find very profound what is the greatest uh, work of art any definition of that word you want that you've ever seen or heard or read people are answering this with yes just one they thing? are just, are they really uh, you know they usually have like one and then they're like but also this and this and this so that's impossible <laughs> that is impossible um god what yeah because i have a category for you know there'd be tv and then there'd be a film one um and then a, a books one um i i've i've never i've never gotten over uh either of George Saunders' first two books, Pastorelia or Civil War Land and Bad Decline. Um, and they are they are to the letter uh, works of art. that I, I cried reading them. I laughed reading them. Um, I have never forgotten the way they cracked open my brain to think about um, things. But that is a, wow. And then I, I went to school for painting, so I have art that I'm thinking of like, Gonna sound like such a boob not knowing these things off the top of my head. Um, I uh, Rauschenberg's combines mm. when they show the largest collection of them in one place here at uh, the Mocha downtown. I was removed twice for crying, <laughs> <laughs> which was not planned. I'm not a terribly weepy person. This podcast makes me sound like I cried everything, but um, and it was the same thing. Uh, 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 George Saunders' writing, um, Nabokov's writing. Um, and um, and something like Rauschenberg's painting, there's something, and also like Breaking Bad, I swear to God, Breaking Bad did this to me, and now the writing when I read the scripts of Better Call Saul, there's something when you feel the uh, the intense need to communicate, again, with the receiver as an artist, um, of, of 
that desperation of finding the right combination of all the senses to make you understand what I am feeling in this moment mm. um, is so affecting and so arresting to me. And it, um, and yeah, if if you see the combines at first, you're like, these just seem weird, and then you realize like this person literally felt limited by normal language and normal painting. He was just like, I I need a whole new vocabulary, much as Picasso. Um, and uh, and you see that in great TV now too, which is which is really exciting to me. That's like people really um, really demanding that you sit forward on the couch instead of sit back. Mm. Uh, and I lo- that's the kind of art I love. Great, great. Better Call Saul airs Mondays on AMC. The first two seasons you can see them on Netflix. Thank you very much for stopping by. Ray. Thanks so much for having me. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf. In case you haven't guessed, that's me. And I like reading closing credits, and you like listening to them, so we're going to do that now. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nisha Kerwa. Our sound designer is Miles Yule. The logo for this show is designed by Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Ulreich. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Our audio engineering and post-production are produced by P3 Post. We recorded this episode in the lovely podcast studio at Village Workspaces in Santa Monica, California. Our recording engineer was Che Brooks. As always, you should please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps get the word out there and helps people hear about the show. And I'll be back next week with another interview with someone interesting from the world of arts and entertainment. Until then, make sure you've turned off your stove. Mm-hmm.